Good evening. Trump's lawyers blast the impeachment trial set to begin tomorrow. The military grapples with sexual harassment and his withdrawal from the Yemen war as middle school kids in New York get ready to go back to school. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, February 8th, 2021. Lawyers for Donald Trump on Monday blasted the impeachment case against him as an act of political theater and accused House Democrats of exploiting the chaos and trauma of last month's Capitol riot for their party's gain. A legal brief in support of the former president's defense in the impeachment trial beginning tomorrow takes a sharp tone, accusing Democrats of making absurd arguments and trying to silence political opponents. The brief suggests Trump was simply exercising his First Amendment rights when he disputed the election results and argues he he explicitly encouraged his supporters to have a peaceful protest and therefore cannot be held responsible for the actions of the rioters. The brief also argues that Trump can't be impeached because he's no longer the president. House impeachment managers filed their own brief Monday, asserting Trump had betrayed the American people. Democrats alleged Trump incited insurrection against the United States government, disrupted the peaceful transfer of power, and committed the most grievous constitutional crime ever committed by a president. The organization Refuse Fascism has been protesting Trump as the harbinger of an authoritarian government or even a civil war. An activist with the group is Sam Goldman. We are right now being confronted by the fact that now more than possibly ever before, this is a country that's full of fascists, tens of millions. And there is a real a real battle afoot on what kind of society we're going to live under, whether there is going to be, um, you know, rule by mob or the rule of law, whether we're going to uphold that women are full human beings, that black people are full human beings, or whether this white supremacist, misogynist, xenophobic um, force is going to win out. And I think that those who feel that a civil war is possible and is close aren't wrong to be feeling that. Just last question. What do you think of the people who are there? They represent the worst that humanity has to offer. They represent a mob filled with theocrats and filled with the most ugly of misogynist, and they represent a real ranger to humanity. Those who participated were doing so directly following the orders of Trump. While I absolutely feel like those who participated should have uh, been arrested and they, they should have consequences, it will actually not be meaningful in terms of issuing a decisive blow to this fascist movement unless Trump himself is convicted. Sam Goldman is an activist with the group Refuse Fascism. The group is sponsoring a virtual forum tonight at 8 p.m. accessible at refusefascism.org. Trump is the first president to be impeached twice and the only one to face trial after leaving the White House. The Democratic-led House approved a sole charge, incitement of insurrection, 
Acting swiftly one week after the riot, the most violent attack on Congress in more than 200 years. Five people died, including a woman shot by police inside the building and a police officer who died of injuries the next day. And Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin on Saturday signed a stand down for extremism memo last week, an unusual safety consideration taken in the wake of the insurrection at the United States Capitol building. Defense Department spokesperson John Kirby. On Friday afternoon, Secretary Austin issued some guidance to the force about the directed stand down that he ordered to uh, to address the issue of extremism in the ranks specifically he directed commanding officers specifically he directed commanding officers and supervisors at all levels to select a date within the next 60 days to conduct a one day stand down with their personnel uh, now he made it very clear that leaders have the discretion to tailor their discussions with their personnel as appropriate to their command to their location to their to, um, to, to their operations, but that such discussions should include the importance of the oath of office uh, that service members take, a description of impermissible behaviors, and procedures for reporting suspected or actual extremist behaviors in accordance with the DOD instruction. This is just a step in what the Secretary believes will be um, a very deliberate process to try to tackle this problem. And he was informed by his own experience in the mid-90s about stuff that was going on in his command right underneath his nose that he didn't realize about. According to the stand-down order, military commanding officers and supervisors at all levels must pick one day in the next 60 to discuss extremism in the ranks with their personnel. The order is titled, Handling Dissident and Protest Activities Among Members of the Armed Forces. Kirby also fielded questions on President Joe Biden's order last week, demanding an end to the war between Saudi Arabia, allied with the United Arab Emirates and backed by the United States, that's aimed at a rebel group controlling most of the nation of Yemen, one of the poorest in the world, a war bringing some of the worst suffering and destruction of any current conflict. The president was very clear in his direction in terms of what we were no longer going to do to support Saudi-led coalition offensive operations in Yemen. That doesn't mean that the counter-ISIS fight in Yemen that we are participating in will not continue. It will. It doesn't mean that we uh, are not going to continue to support Saudi Arabia as they legitimately need to defend themselves and their people. Um, but again, I won't speak for I won't speak for other countries. Uh, the uh, I think the message was was very clear that. Um, uh, that the war in Yemen has become a uniquely horrific humanitarian disaster, uh, and more needs to be done uh, uh, as a as a government as a government to try to reduce the effects of that catastrophe and alleviate the, the human suffering in Yemen. And it was a decision by this administration uh, that a step in that process would be to curtail the support to the offensive operations in, in the country. Department of Defense spokesperson John Kirby, a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, is Phyllis Bennis. She spoke about the complex interplay of U.S. interests in the region and the conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Bennis appeared on the Analysis.News show with Paul Jay. They are serious, both about the ending of direct support to the Yemen war, which was voted on by Congress. Both houses of Congress passed right. legislation calling for an end to uh, the sharing of, of intel, the uh, targeting information that the U.S. was providing. It also mentioned the what has already been 
uh, uh, stalled but could be re- could be renewed, which is the U.S. involvement in providing in-air refueling to Saudi airplanes, which meant that they could be much more efficient at bombing funerals and wedding parties and other civilian targets because they had U.S. planes providing fuel while they were in the air. But we also have seen that was that was vetoed by Trump and Biden has made clear that he would not veto it if it came back to his to his desk, which I think it will, because the, I think the, the bipartisan votes for it will still be there in in Congress. What we also saw, though, is a uh, a move to put an at least a temporary pause on the two big uh, um, arms deals that were just made with Saudi Arabia and the UAE. For the UAE, it's a uh, a huge deal for fifty. F-35 fighter bombers. This is the plane that the Pentagon keeps saying they don't even want, but Boeing keeps producing them, so they have to be sold to other countries. It's hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in that deal. And then the deal for Saudi Arabia is for uh, very advanced uh, um, advanced bombings that allow very clear, supposedly very clear targeting. But again, in the Yemen war, they will be used again, and they have been used in ways that create huge numbers of of civilian casualties, both of those deals are now stalled. They're now going to be reevaluated by the Biden administration. They haven't said that they're going to stop them permanently, but they've indicated that that might be a possibility. And I think that right now, I think you're right, Larry, that at the at the level of the press and some in Congress, the issue of Khashoggi's killing and what the Saudis have done in Yemen, which is responsible for huge numbers of of people dying in this horrific war what the UN calls the, the worst humanitarian catastrophe now underway in the entire world. It's also true that a number of members of Congress have remembered it and have taken this up in a much more serious way. And there's a host of reasons why, after just a two-year campaign, for the first time, we did see Congress voting to stop U.S. support for the Saudis. That had never happened before either. And it has to do partly with the level of humanitarian catastrophe. It also has to do with the Khashoggi killing. It has to do with MBS and his relationship to the Trump administration, particularly to Jared Kushner. And very frankly, it has something to do with anti-Arab racism. It's easier for members of Congress to come out against Saudi Arabia, even though it's been a longtime ally, because they're Arabs. If this was Israel in the same position, we would not see the same result. But we are seeing it now. And I'm, I'm a little bit optimistic that that momentum is going to continue. Phyllis Bennis is a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. Meanwhile, the United Nations Special Envoy for Yemen arrived on his first visit to Iran Sunday for talks on the grinding war in the Arab world's poorest country. That's according to Iranian state TV. Martin Griffiths was set to meet with Iranian Foreign Minister Javed Zarif and other officials during his two-day visit. The long-awaited move refocused spotlight on the world's worst humanitarian crisis and was welcomed by many Yemenis and aid groups that hope the policy change might add momentum to peace talks. Code Pink activist Medea Benjamin says the Biden administration is moving in the right direction. There is indications that the Biden administration is not going to uh, be so close to the Saudis as certainly as Trump was, and that's a positive thing. Does that mean that there'll be a change with the relationship with Iran? There are people within the administration, including the new envoy uh, for Iran, who is Rob Malley, who really do understand negotiations and want to have 
a um, quick reentry into the Iran nuclear deal. On the other hand, there are very strong lobby groups in this country and outside the country, like the Israelis, who are trying to put up roadblocks. And that includes some of the Republican senators and even some of the conservative Democratic ones who are trying to uh, find ways to have uh, legal avenues that they can use to block a lifting of the sanctions, which uh, Iran now says is a must before complying with the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear deal. So um, there are obstacles, but I do think the Biden administration wants to get back into that deal. The question is how, and the Iranians have put forward a credible way, which is having the Europeans orchestrate the compliance for compliance, meaning the uh, U.S. comes back into compliance and Iran will as well. But so far, the Biden administration has not agreed to that and is still calling for Iran to comply first. So that doesn't make any sense, given that it's the U.S. that got out of the agreement to begin with. The U.S. should go back into the agreement first. You know, it sounds a bit childish and diplomacy sometimes so strikes me as a bit childish. Is this normal diplomacy? It's domestic politics in the United States. If it were normal diplomacy, the Iranian position of having the Europeans orchestrated, since the Europeans stayed in the deal during this time, they want the deal to succeed, that would make sense. But Biden is playing to domestic politics. Talking about Biden, what do you think overall in the direction of his cabinet, his policies, considering he was so close to Obama and Obama started a lot of this problem? Let's remember that Iran nuclear deal was negotiated under Obama. So that is something that is a uh, legacy achievement that the Biden administration would like to get back to. But you're right in terms of other things, such as getting into the Yemen war that was started under Obama, yet they were under the ridiculous assumption that it was going to be very quick and easy. We're almost six years later now. I do think that the Biden administration wants to get out of the war in Yemen. He recognizes that it is a humanitarian catastrophe and that there is no winning this war militarily. The Israeli pressure is a very, very strong one. It's interesting that Biden hasn't talked to Netanyahu since he came into power. But that doesn't mean that Netanyahu's presence isn't being felt every single day within this administration. And that makes things like getting into the Iran nuclear deal, pulling out of the Yemen conflict because the Israelis sees that as an Iran-Saudi proxy war. It makes it all much more difficult. What should happen in Yemen once there's a disengagement, hopefully, of the military conflict? What should the U.S. and the other countries do next? Well, there has to be an end to the war. And the U.S. and other countries must put a lot of pressure on the Saudis to stop the war, to stop the bombing, and then go back to the negotiating table. And then there is the issue of humanitarian aid and then rebuilding. There is so much devastation in Yemen, and the United States is not giving the amount of money that it owes, given how much it was responsible for the destruction that U.S. companies like Raytheon and Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin, it was their weapons that were used by the Saudis and the Emiratis to destroy so much of the infrastructure in, of Yemen. So the U.S. has a big responsibility to give significant amount of money, over a billion dollars per year, to help rebuilding. Code Ping activist Medea Benjamin. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York.
I'm Paul DiRienzo. Evidence is mounting that having COVID-19 may not protect against getting infected again with some of the new variants. A study says people who can people also can get second infections with earlier versions of the coronavirus if they mounted a weak defense the first time. How long immunity lasts from natural infection is one of the big questions in the pandemic. In South Africa, a vaccine study found new infections with a variant in 2% of the people who previously had an earlier version of the virus. In Brazil, several similar cases were documented with a new variant there. In the United States, a study found that 10% of marine recruits who had evidence of prior infection and repeatedly tested negative before starting basic training were later infected again. But despite the spreading mutations, the head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, says there's been a marked decline in cases of COVID in the United States, even as the numbers of deaths hold stubbornly on. Trends moving in the right direction, we remain in a very serious situation. COVID-19 continues to affect too many people as we continue to mourn all of those lives that have been lost. Cases have continued to decline over the last four weeks. An average of 119,900 new cases were reported between January 31st and February 6th. That's a drop of nearly 20% from the prior week, but still dramatically higher than the last summer's peak. We must continue to drive these cases down. New COVID-19 hospital admissions also continue to decline. An average of 9,977 admissions per day were reported between January 30th and February 5th, a decline of nearly 17% from the week prior. This is promising, but hospitalizations also remain incredibly high. Over 83,000 Americans are hospitalized right now with COVID-19, much higher than the summer and fall. Today, we are reporting that COVID-19 deaths increased 2.4% to an average of 3,221 deaths per day from January 31st to February 6th. And Dr. Walensky also addressed reopening the nation's schools to in-classroom learning. She says while schools haven't been super spreaders of the disease, it's important not to let your guard down. What we know mostly about schools in terms of the data are that most infections come into the schools through the community. The data from schools suggests that there's very little transmission that is happening within the schools, especially when there's masking and distancing occurring. And that when there are transmissions in the schools, it is because they've brought, been brought in from the community and because there are breaches in masking and distancing. So if we wanna get our schools open and our schools open safely and well, the best way to do that is to decrease the community spread. Dr. Rochelle Walensky is head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And about 62,000 New York City middle school students who opted for in-person learning last year will be able to return to classrooms for at least part of the week starting February 25th. The city still doesn't have a plan to reopen its high schools. The mayor made the announcement today. I'm very pleased to announce that for our children in the middle grades, grades 6 to 8, you are coming back to school in person for all who were signed up for in-person education. Uh, it's going to start up again Thursday, February 25th. And we're really excited about that. We know kids are ready to come back. Uh, teachers and staff are excited to see the kids again. Uh, teachers and staff will come in on the 24th to get ready. And then uh, in-person education for kids at the middle grades, grades 6 to 8, up and running Thursday, February 25th. This is going to be great for New York City. And a lot of work has gone into this.
The return, that's Mayor de Blasio, the return of middle school students means that by the end of February, about 250,000 of New York City's roughly million public school students will be back in school buildings. School Chancellor Richard Carranza explained the details. Of the 471 uh, middle schools, we fully expect that half will be able to open their doors uh, on the on the 25th, offering uh, five-day-a-week instruction to their students. And we know that the other middle schools are going to continue to uh, program and reprogram to get to the goal of having five-day-a-week. In the rare occasions or the occasions where perhaps space just isn't available, we will continue to prioritize vulnerable groups of students, including students with disabilities, students in temporary housing, multilingual learners, etc., cetera, uh, so that even in a school that is not fully five days a week, uh, the most vulnerable student populations can receive five-day-a-week instruction. School Chancellor Richard Carranza, he also uh, uh, said that parents and students should get used to distance and online learning. That's something that probably will not uh, be eliminated now that the schools are thinking of coming back to the classroom. This whole notion of virtual learning, remote learning, electronic distance learning, that's going to stay with us well beyond the end of the pandemic because it does also provide students with an opportunity to enhance their learning, personalize their learning, do some self-directed investigation. Think of the power of a group of five students being able to work on a project and instead of having to be in one place together, they could do it on on Google Classroom uh, in the evening. So it creates these opportunities as well to really accelerate and enhance instruction. So we're looking at it, and the mayor and I have announced our plan for recovery, Uh, We're looking at this being a component of what the new normal looks like post-pandemic in a good way, not to replace in-person learning, but to keep the best parts of what we've really built in terms of capacity and keep that going into the future. And the United Federation of Teachers President Michael Mulgrew released his comments on reopening middle schools earlier today. Mulgrew wrote, the UFT will be monitoring to ensure that the testing regimen, the presence of personal protective equipment and social distancing requirements are strictly adhered to as new grades and buildings reopen. Mulgrew continued, these strict standards and the requirement that buildings close temporarily when virus cases are detected have made our schools the safest places to be in our communities during the pandemic, they'll continue to be the strongest protections for the health and safety of students and class. And finally, Governor Andrew Cuomo announced Monday that indoor dining will now return at 25% capacity on February 12th, two days before it was originally set to return on the 14th. Many in the restaurant industry had called for an earlier return to indoor dining, arguing that they would lose business from the Valentine's Day weekend if they could only begin opening on February 14th, already typically one of the busiest days of the year for the restaurant industry. The New York City Hospitality Alliance, which represents thousands of restaurants in the city, commended the decision. They wrote in a statement, this will allow restaurants to generate much needed revenue from the Valentine's Day weekend, from weekend business, much of which they would have lost because the holiday falls on a Sunday this year. Don't forget, for your loved ones, Valentine's Day. And that's some of the news for Monday, February 8th, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson. From New York City for the WBAI News, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for listening. <laughs>